Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined once again by my co-host, Saima. What up, wheelies? And, of course, by our panel of newbies. Say hello, panel. Hello, panel. panel. Joining us today, it's David. You owe me a shit, Picard. DW. What's up? Samaria's here. Hey, guys. Greg. Hey. And Siobhan. Hey, everybody. Hey, uh, it's, it's nice to get the whole group back together again. We had a, a much smaller group last week, so things moved on at a, at a decent clip, actually. But uh, I'm glad to have... And we're have here them. to slow everything right back <laughs> down. <laughs> um, that's I miss okay. my fellow English person, so... <laughs> Missing Axel. Hey, Axel. Uh, hopefully Axel will be with us again next week. Uh, yes. For this week's episode, we are going to continue our deep dives on the side characters. And uh, I think uh, due to popular demand, the first character we are going to discuss is Tom. Woohoo! The hardcore troubadour. Right. <laughs> so we've got Tom, played by Alexander Willem. And I'm, I know I'm probably butchering the pronunciation on that. Um, he's a Danish actor and well known for many roles in, in his own country. Um, um, I, I recently saw him in um, The Head on HBO Max. It's a, a kind of whodunit horror miniseries based in Antarctica. Um, oh, I, I'd I, be looking for that. Yeah. I actually ended up going and watching it because doing the research for these episodes, I discovered that both he and Loghain are in that show. So I was like, well, I'm going to go watch that now. Ah, cool. Um, but yeah, he's playing Tom Drill Marilyn. Um, he is a gleeman from Andor, and in the books, he is supposed to be about 60-ish. Really? 60-ish? 60-ish. I was thinking, I don't know, maybe it's just the descriptions. Okay, we'll get to the description. <laughs> it ain't the years, it's the mileage. <laughs> um, so the book description, uh, he is described as fairly old with a gnarled face, shaggy white hair, and blue eyes. He's tall with stooped shoulders. He wears a cloak that is described by Bran Elvir as having more patches than cloak and more colors than you can think of. It is also described as being quite thick, having odd baggy sleeves and big pockets. His snowy hair and long mustaches make him appear older than he probably is, given his spryness. He is frequently portrayed as smoking a pipe. So what do we think about, uh, did, did they approach that, that description or... Uh, no, that sounds like Gandalf. Uh, that's, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> hmm, maybe that's why they didn't. <laughs> right. I like the shift of um, cloak to jacket because cloak has kind of a, I, you know, so the medieval and fantasy stories have, have kind of overused the cloak yeah. almost to the point of, of, uh, Edna's Edna modes, uh, no capes. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> so I liked the jacket. I, I've, I think I've been clear on the show. I want the jacket. Yes. Um, I, I definitely think that was a nice change. Well, they gave him that Western look too. So a, a cloak on a, a Western guy doesn't look right, but a duster jacket does. Yes. He does have that kind of gunslinger vibe, doesn't he? Yep. Oh, plus, how do you throw knives out of a cloak? I mean, it doesn't work very well. Yeah, it's not, it, it does not look near as cool. <laughs> All I can think of is the uh, Blue Raja from um, <laughs> Threw Forks from Under a Cloak. Uh, <laughs> 
Oh, what was the name of that movie? Oh, man. Mystery Men. Mystery Men. Mystery Men. Thank Man. you. Thank you. I love that movie. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, his, his, the vibe they gave him definitely feels like he has traveled. And I like that there, yeah. there doesn't seem, he doesn't, he both at the same time fits in and doesn't fit in. Right. He stands out in a way like, huh, he's not from here, but you also kind of look at him like, yeah, but he fits in here. Yeah. He, he's definitely got the, the road the road guy kind of thing, you know, like I said, the, the, the hardcore troubadour. I mean, he's the one that comes to town and, you know, brings the, brings a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of menace, a little bit of uh, showmanship and moves on down the line, you know? Well, and it's clear, like what the cities we've seen him in, he's been there multiple times because there's, and has left an impact to the point where people, when he returned, remembered him. Mm -hmm. He's on the circuit. I wanted to say something about the description from the books. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a, a clip of an interview with Alexander, and he was talking about you know he got the he got the call and he got the description, and he said that he always likes to do his own thing with you know any role that he's given, and he just figured that everyone else who was going for this role was going to look exactly like the description that Ruark just read. And so he thought, well, I'll just do my own thing. And he said that the entrance that we get to Tom is basic was basically his um his audition. Nice. Nice. It works. Like, wow. So I just thought that's amazing that I just can imagine like a room full of like gnarled white haired, mustache, you know, cloak, patch wearing cloak people. And then he walks in the way he is. And yeah, just blew How do you stand out away. in a room where Room full of Sam Elliott clones. You wear a full beard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who don't know, in the fandom before Tom was cast, everybody was just saying, was saying um, Sam Elliott needs to be um, Tom just because of the mustache. But apparently they did try the mustache on Alexander and he said it just didn't work. It did not work with, with what he was doing. Yeah. So they decided to scrap it. Honestly, I like the grizzled kind of half-shaven yeah. look they went with. Mm -hmm. I, I feel it really fits Tom's character. He's really got well. swag. Yeah, yeah, he does. Honestly, yeah. like I think that's my one contribution to Tom. He's got swag. He also reminds me a bit of an English teacher. Like there are two types of English teachers I've come across <laughs> where they're either <laughs> like really buttoned up, kind of dweeby, you know, sharp. And then you have the other ones who are just absolutely off their rocker, but they're like <laughs> really cool and you want to hang out in their classroom. That's Tom. <laughs> He's basically you, a you teacher, have a point. right? You have a point. Stories. <laughs> But there's so the the shot of his entry where he's singing, right? When you next time you watch that that scene, so you have Tom, he's sitting on the stool, and in the background, when you're looking at it on the right hand side in the background, there's this Aristotle looking dude. And I just think I love the fact that they put him in there, this white haired, white mustache, heavy mustached older man. And it's like, yeah. that's the Tom Tom you were expecting. But this is the Tom that you get. And it's like, they yeah. put him in I there. That's beautiful. <laughs> I, I do remember noticing that the first watch, watch through and just kind of laughing about it. Though. Yeah, not having a description or even knowing who Tom was when he made his entrance. I did not make that connection. Now I need to go back and watch that. Yeah. That's pretty. I love these little yeah. clues they put in there for the book readers. You know, it's like, ha ha ha, you get that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we know about the character of Tom? 
from from what we've seen of him in the show what what is what is he like what are his motivations what's 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 at central at the core of tom here where's he from what's his background where's he going well to use him in the in the uh lord of the rings kind of setting he's seems to be the strider type the guy who's mysterious and you don't know why but seems to know a lot more than he's even letting on has some answers that you maybe need to to know, but he also has stuff that you don't need to know that he needs to deal with. And you need to wait here while he goes and deals with that stuff and he'll catch up with you later. The whole um, scene with the Aiel um, really kind of brings out the fact that he's like well-traveled. He knows about the cultures of other, other people in other places, cultures that would be really unfamiliar to most people. Mm-hmm. And it also shows that he's got a basic humanity that comes through, you know, uh, that's one of the things, you know, if you're, if you're a great songwriter, you're in touch with that, you know, you may not necessarily, uh, you know, act on it, (laughs) but you're in touch with, with your humanity and emotions and, uh, empathy. You've got to be able to have empathy to write from someone else's perspective. Yeah. Um, and Siobhan, you touched on the fact that he, he had this knowledge of the Aiel, um, which is a culture of people that we, for the most part, people in the world have no knowledge of because they live completely separately from where everyone is. Um, so I figured I would give a little background information there to let you know how he knows that, um, there are three classes of people that are allowed to travel through the ideal waste. One, I'm not going to tell you one is peddlers and one is gleeman. And when you say allowed, you mean allowed by the ideal themselves? Yes. If you are not one of those three things and you enter the waste, you're probably not coming back out of the waste. But knowing that, like I feel from what we've seen of Tom, mm-hmm. He didn't do that because he needed to get to the other side. Like he wanted to go learn about the Aiel. Like I feel like he's a collector of stories and a collector of, of this, the cultures and stuff and will bring those to other people. He wants to, he wants to go to the Aiel and learn an Aiel song that he can bring to a tavern in, you know, outside the ivory tower and be like, yeah, you guys should know this story. Here it is to kind of create bridges. That's kind of, the currency of, you know, traveling bards, their whole traditional rule was they, they brought you the news. They brought you the stories of what was going on in places from far away. Mm -hmm. They weren't just entertainers. I really love that uh, DW brought up that he reminded him of Strider because in the books, it was more like if there's going to be comparisons and obviously the first book was very much, you know, based upon Lord of the Rings. Lan was the Strider type. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Tom has been made into, you know, also a strider type. I I love the fact that you've made that connection because it's so true and it's so much better. Actually, I'm I'm almost seeing them as two different characters. Like, you know, Strider and Aragorn are are two halves of a whole. Like, yes. like mm, you know, Batman yeah. and Bruce Wayne almost. Mm. And Tom is the Strider side and Lan is the Aragorn side. Mm. Yeah, has the nobility, has the okay, I can see that. Yeah. So what you're saying is that Lan and Tom are secretly the same person? Is that what we... 
Did you just spoil I, I, something I, I, from the I, books? I, I think they're they're actually more part of a Voltron. I would say we have not seen Lan and Tom in the same room. <laughs> you do have a valid point there. Well, we have been going for this whole Voltron thing, so we may get our Voltron after all. <laughs> it's just not who we Voltron, thought. We will force a Voltron on this show from hell or high water. And Tom forms the voice. Tom, throw Tam and Uno in there. <laughs> I'm just going to say there's quite a few book reader heads that have just exploded. Um, but you have to figure out why. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, moving to, I to come back to. So when Ruark uh, said that Tom in the books is sixty-ish, I've always had a problem with that because the description doesn't kind of for me didn't match the yeah. the age. And what I'm really happy about is that they have gone for somebody younger uh, and more dynamic, which. Um, you know, without going into too much detail, but I will say we'll make it less uncomfortable later down the road. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Well, oh, dear. I would say, though, that even in the description that Ruark read, it mentioned that Tom looks older than he is. Yeah. So, like, because it mentioned the spryness that he has to have to be as nimble and, and you know, knife throwing and you know, able to to take on what dangers I'm sure they are going to have him face. Um you can so, still be re, you can you can still be a seventy possibly early eighty spry old man. True, um, but like I said, the um, making there's other things is yeah. is, is uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, to to cut a long story short, nobody can see um, Sam Elliott doing back springs and flips off of tabletops. Is is where yeah. we're going? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And we don't want them to waste CGI budget on that anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, so other thoughts on Tom. Where, where do we, what do we think is in Tom's past? Obviously, this is a guy with a, a checkered and interesting past that we want to know about. We know the backstory with his nephew, and I got the sense from that story that he had kind of settled down at, at that point in his life. and that his uh, traveling days kind of happened after that. So I wonder if his nephew's story kind of informed his traveling and there's a reason he's out there to protect others who are in that situation, like he latches on to Matt, um, or to just deliver that humanity that Greg mentioned in general. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that he's probably got the wanderlust from being ex-military. Uh, he's got the, he's got the combat skills. He's got the, you know, knowing how to travel long distances safely, blend in uh, and stand out when he needs to. I think he's got either a military or sort of an espionage background. I was about to say, he gives me uh, mercenary vibes. Yeah. I can see that too, but he also strikes me as the type who started off maybe having some street smarts, some uh, oh, yeah, living definitely. off the streets, and then that transferred into him being a military. So there's there's some sleight of hand skills that he was running a con game when he was 15 kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely I see that. that. Yeah. All right. I would never let him call queens for me. No. The card game, I would never let him... Yeah, wouldn't trust that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't play cards against him gone. in general. 
Yeah, true, true. Especially if you brought the deck. Right. I, I, I want to <laughs> I, I want to take a moment here and congratulate Saima on on keeping an absolutely straight face. You were learning well. <laughs> <laughs> you were learning quite well. Oh, I thought guys, that means we hit on something. That means we hit on something. <laughs> anyway, keep going, keep digging. I was going to ask a question. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. You know, it's oh, and seriously, it hurts. Um, <laughs> um, so, what you raise about, um, you know, possibly this military background, espionage. Do you think? Do you see this as specific to Tom, or are you talk? Are you actually thinking more about Gleam men in general? Well, Tom, since he's the we've only, seen another Gleeman. Yeah, yeah, he's Tom's the only Gleeman that we've seen. Uh, this this thought specific to Tom. Uh, I'm sure that there is a sort of, you know, soldier to troubadour pipeline somewhere, uh, but not necessarily, you know, a generalization. Well, to go on the idea that was mentioned already of um, Gleeman being the, the possibly news bringers, that also makes them very good as reconnaissance. So mm-hmm. it might be something that military has seen value in Gleeman. Right. Sort of to, you know, scouting. you get to cross, you get to cross borders that our soldiers can't mm-hmm. and possibly bring us back Intel. And nobody kind of looks at you with suspicion. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a requirement to be a Gleeman from what we've seen. I don't, I Again, which is very little, right? But I, I, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm to have that, to, that I'm not mercenary. trying to lead you in any particular <laughs> direction, but it was just because you know the 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 one of the really strong lines that Tom says is that you know there's nothing more dangerous than a man who can't forget. So a mm-hmm. man who has stories, stories are information, right? And this is what Gleeman can trade in. So I just I was really interested in what you know as you were all talking about that aspect. It was making me think of that. Hmm. Certainly no, spoilers. Heavy, no spoilers. Certainly have a military <clears throat> or, you know, some other background that ensures that they're able to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Is military, paramilitary, uh, you know, mercenary. It's probably a good survival skill if you're traveling. Yeah. I would say it also can provide a cover if somebody is doing some sorts of uh, deeds for someone in a town. Well, why are they in the town? Well, he's a glee man. He travels. Like mm-hmm. nobody's going to look twice at the guy who came here to sing some songs in the tavern, right? And also secretly kill the duke who's having a problem. You know. Let me let me just see if I'm following along here. From what we've seen of Tom in the show, which is a dude who plays guitars and and throws knives, mm-hmm. you are. Going from there to Tom is some sort of super soldier, assassin, spy, 007. <laughs> no, no, no. At that yeah. point, I was talking. Is, is, no. Is that, okay. At that point, I was talking about the potential usefulness of Gleeman. Okay. Right. Okay. Not, to, the, not Tom specific. But I will say that as much as we've seen of him being a knife thrower, we did not see that in him as he was singing, which to me makes it more of a secret skill mm-hmm. than a, like, he doesn't walk in, you know, with a guitar and 15 knives hanging on him which means he's advertising that he can throw knives like mad. Right. He did not, we did not see that until a knife was in someone. Yeah. He's not the gunslinger walking in with his guns on a show. Right. Exactly. He's the guy who has the gun in like the back of the guitar, which already means there's something more secretive going on. Okay. So now he's Antonio Banderas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> El Mariachi. Well, clearly. Tom's getting sexier and sexier. Yeah. <laughs> and, and with that, I think uh, we've, we've, 
kind of gotten through Tom, but uh, maybe we might uh, want to talk about his song a little bit. I think we talked about his song when we were talking about music and the beautiful aspect that they recorded it and drilled it and fixed it and made it nice and then had that play in his ear while he sang live. That was a beautiful, beautiful process that gave us such... Because with you have a Glee man... Or, or I, you know, I'd say that like, ah, you know, me, an expert on Gleeman. Um, <laughs> but when you have a bard or somebody who's traveling and singing in taverns, they've sang that song 9,000 times before. So to have taken him and instead of ha- making him act like he sang that song, he did. He sang that song. He worked that song. He found his lilts. He found his moment. And then you get that live performance that's going to be somewhat different than everything else. It's It was beautiful. I, I don't know what I was expecting. Um, even when reading the books, you know, when Tom sings and it's described a lot, I, I never really had a clear sound in my head. It could have sounded kooky. It was so not what I was expecting. Yeah. And it was, I, I, was, I was breathless because I was just really... I didn't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that. I can say I, I did not envision Tom Waits as Tom, <laughs> which, which is what ended up happening here. And and I'm on board for it entirely. Yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. I mean, you're getting the, the description from the book. It's like you, you, you think Sam Elliott, but it would come out more like, you know, Jeff Bridges and Crazy Heart or something like that, yeah. where it, it doesn't quite have that that same impact because he's not, you know. Yeah. But also the the song has the the grittiness the the slightly the stridery type mm-hmm. you know persona to it, um, and I'll just say we're gonna come back to the song, like we're gonna be coming back to the song. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> that's exciting. There's a lot in that song. Yeah, yeah. One of the questions that we talk about in in some of the other episodes and doing character deep dives is where do we think he's going, which we don't have an idea of where Tom's going, do we? I have an idea. You guys know I'm asking my fellow panelists, (laughs) uh, do we have an idea? Where do we think that Tom is going? Well, we had we had that really interesting. I think David and Greg had some really interesting thoughts on the end of the, you know, when we finally see Tom, what could happen and how he could, you know, we're just assuming there's not, we didn't see the dead body. So right. until we see the dead body, we're going to assume they're alive. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'll, I'll leave it to, I don't know, maybe if David remembers. Well, yeah. And that, that was about uh, Matt going back to the scene of his guilt and then discovering that Tom's not dead in some way, shape or form, whether Tom's there or not. So it kind of um, follows that those would get together. So you would probably see Matt and Tom going off and doing something together. What that is, I have no idea. So so on the subject of Tom's death, um, it seems, or Tom's possible death, it seems like if Tom is still alive, which I think 100% of the panel is thinking at this point, that gives us two options for why he's still alive. And those options are number one, because he is better than and bested a, a mere draw in hand to hand combat or B because he wasn't the target. So the mere draw just got him out of the way so he could continue chasing Brandon Matt. What do you 
think. Is- See, he's in cahoots. <laughs> so I was going to say that too, Greg. <laughs> I don't that think is, that is a possibility. I didn't want to, you know, necessarily plant that in your ear, but hey, that is a possibility. Maybe he's the dark one. Well, he does have the dark one's voice. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I could see him. Ha- I, I believe that he has the ability to best a mere draw. What exactly? When when they when we talked about with the horn blowing and bringing the friends of the dragon, the the supporters of the dragon together, I get the vibe that. Tom is going to be one of those. Like, as far as the weave pattern goes, like he is definitely close to the whole thing and is going to, you know, keep turning, that thread's going to keep turning up in the pattern. Um, so, so that's working off of your theory that the Horn of Velier, when blown, causes sleeper agents to to reawaken to their past lives as, or something to that there must while be I, kind While I have mentioned that, <laughs> well, I have mentioned the, my my wonder on that. I don't think that he doesn't know that he's involved in all this. I, I think, like I said, I don't know that he is aware of everything going on, but I do get the vibe that he's somebody who knows more than he has let on. I have a feeling that he has some knowledge of what's going on in the world and is in his own way trying to make events go a certain way. And whether or not that ends up lining up with what the dragon wants, hey. We'll find out. I don't know that, but I have a feeling that when it calls the people who are to aid the dragon, I think Tom will be among those who will aid the dragon. Hmm. Well, and we've also talked that the Mirdral's greatest weapon is that they shoot fear into whoever looks at them. And I, I get the sense with Tom, there's not much that he's afraid of. And so if that's what the Mirdral is using to best their enemies, he should be able to get rid of one fairly easily. You have no power over me. <laughs> exactly. So coming back to Greg's third option. <laughs> <laughs> With that in mind, what do we think about Tom saying to, sorry, I, 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 I read it as, as Tom. And so I'm still kind of halfway to Tom <laughs> all the, all these years. Um, so the H slips back in. What do we think about, his um saying to Rand and Matt, well, saying to Rand that oh Matt could potentially channel, we must keep him away from the Aes Sedai. Could a different something else be read into that? The Dark One wants to put together an army of people who can channel, especially men. Yeah, I originally heard read that as him being protective of Matt. They will do terrible things to him if he can channel. But if you look at him as a potential uh, dark friend, but then he also killed Dana, who was a dark friend. Hmm. Sacrifice to me. But, but what's yeah. the best way to build trust in somebody? <laughs> mm-hmm. And doesn't Rand say that? And yeah. Matt's response is, well, that would be smart. <laughs> so, so for following this theory to its end, what do we think when when Rand and Matt got out of the farmhouse? He and the Mirdral just sat down and had a beer or something. Or? <laughs> oh, Tom whole... Tom clearly brought the booze to that party. Right. <laughs> so that that whole the, little episode they were high fiving was... each other. Oh man, did you see how scared they were? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can picture it now. As soon as they're out of earshot, they just look at each other and just. <laughs> <laughs> or nice one, Dave. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> 
I, I'm sorry, but the the thought of a Mirdral laughing is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, what would they find funny? Well, you know, it's not nasal. This is true. This is true. <laughs> they cannot laugh nasally. <laughs> you were saying something, Samaria? Yeah, I was like, gosh, imagine what they would find funny. I'm like, mm. yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, that's disturbing. That's so not funny, just thinking about that. Yeah. Oh. Um, I think with that, that's probably a good point for us to just move on. And, uh... <laughs> Wait, one, one last thing. We don't want to one... give anyone nightmares. <laughs> just one last thing. I have a feeling that when they meet... Tom and Loyal will share some kind of, some some kind of secret handshake. It's like, hey, good to see you, man. It's been a while. Uh, Tom and Loyal are are masons. <laughs> <laughs> no, just old buds. I would say that if they're not old buds, I like that idea. But if it doesn't end up that, I, at the very least, <laughs> he's going to know some Ogier like ritual or greeting or something to say that Loyal's going to know. Oh, this guy knows Ogier. He'll walk up and do the like slap, slap, fist bump, handshake over, under, over the shoulder. That's that's what I mean by secret handshake, not masons. I'm talking about like old friends who've developed this thing over the years. That was a segue. Yes. And uh, yeah, with that segue, we're actually going to run into a commercial break right now. But uh, when we come back, uh, yeah, I think we'll just talk about loyal since we were heading right there anyway. This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. And coming back from break, uh, we are going to start discussing Loyal. Uh, Loyal, son of Errant, son of Holland, of Steading Shangtai, is being played by Hamid Anamashan. Uh, Hamid is an English actor. Uh, he's been in an, ep- uh, an episode of Black Mirror, a bunch of BBC stuff, including uh, National Theatre Live on several occasions. And yeah, uh, I, I, I first saw him in a performance of Shakespeare in the Park. Um, it, he was playing Bottom in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, is, awesome. that, is that visible on like a streaming service or um, is that live? I, I don't remember where I saw it. When, when oh. he was first announced, somebody shared a, a grainy video of him performing at, at Shakespeare in the Park. And I watched it to see who this guy was and was just blown away. I will be Googling that later. Thank yes. you. Um, in, in the books, he is described as he stands tall, almost 10 feet. And like all Ogier, his face has a broad, almost snout-like nose and eyebrows that hang down like tails framing pale eyes as big as teacups. His ears poke up to tufted points through shaggy black hair and twitch when his emotions are running high. His voice is as deep as a drum. His smile splits his face in two and shows teeth as broad as chisels. His fingers are broad enough for three, on hands big enough for hams. He's considered young amongst Ogier at about 90 years old. So, obviously they did not stick with the book description there. Right. I'm Um, Yeah. um, This would be a little tricky. Yeah, I, I, (laughs) I have to say, I have never had a firm image of Loyal in my head. 
because that description it is so odd in in some ways. It's so far from um, reality. Yeah, you know, you've got to have some sort of grounding. Yeah, the only thing that stuck for me was his eyebrows because they're they very kind of show his eyebrows and ears show his emotions. Yeah, but I believe the show said that with the CGI budget, if they'd used it on Loyal, he wouldn't have been in as many many scenes yeah. so definitely the right I, I, I would rather have more loyal than mm. more ear twitchies yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I like that they got the small eyes and the snout like nose though i think that's very distinctive yeah. his hands too the description of his hands are very yeah yeah and when you see his hands in the, in the show they are extra large size that's for sure right i was going to ask is he typical He's young for no gear, but is he a typical size for no gear? He he is a typical size for no gear. He is young, but he is like a young adult. So like 18, 20? Yeah, he would be the, the O'Gear equivalent of about 16 to 20, somewhere in there. Be a little tricky to get a 10-foot guy around all of those sets. and Yeah. Hard enough ducking in the current costume. Yeah, I, I completely understand why they, they shrunk the size down quite a bit because, you know, 10 feet is difficult to do seven, seven to eight feet. That's a lot easier to, to deal with. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can put on six inch foot platforms and I'm at seven feet. So that's a lot easier to do than a 10 foot. And, and I mean, you can do 10 foot on stilts, but making it look convincing is, is the difficult part. Or force perspective, like yeah. Peter Jackson did in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But if you had a Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings budget where you could spend how many hours figuring out that force perspective. Right. Yeah. A little hard to do on TV. Yeah, again, with the CGI, and then you do less scenes with Loyal because you have to do that force perspective in every single scene. Well, and you also have to have all the props done at different sizes, and the, the budget gets ridiculous when trying to face so absolutely understood. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what do we think about Loyal's character? What, what's, uh, what's driving him? Who is he? What, what's, what's his past? What's his future? Is very adventurous and and impetuous by Ogier standards. <laughs> <laughs> very running but, off with a bunch of strangers to have adventures to parts unknown. But also one of the characters that I've never doubted the motives of. Yes, like so genuinely, yeah. like good. It's, yeah, yeah there's, there's something about loyal. He's just very genuine and and. There's no guile happening there. Right. Like, yeah, to the point it, even in the speech, like sometimes he'll use phrases that it's like, okay, you didn't need to be that accurate. With yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> we got what your gist was. I think what I like about Loyal in that sense, in that it doesn't come off as him being naive. It's more like he doesn't see the point in being anything other than what he is. And, right. you know, he's yeah. very honest because I think for him, there's no point in not being honest. And so, you know, very straightforward, but also kind, which is kind of hard to balance. But if he's 90 years old, at least, then he's had plenty of time to figure that out. Yeah, duplicity has no place for him. Yeah, I, I, I see that, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm suddenly imagining some, like, sitcom scenario where, where Rand and Loyal get into some trouble and Rand is like, okay, Loyal, here's our story and you have to stick to it. And, and then, like, you know, Loyal just breaking down under the first question. 
or just horribly acting they yeah. be. <laughs> it's like we were driving a car, remember that? And you'd be like, okay, which car was I driving? When was, I don't remember driving the car. <laughs> <laughs> what brand? I do not know how to drive a car. <laughs> but we were clearly <laughs> definitely driving a car. I would never mean that we weren't driving a car. <laughs> what is a car? <laughs> Rand, you're being so hasty. And and, uh, for for the show listeners, uh, you're probably thinking that's a very bad loyal impression. For the audiobook listeners, you know that that's dead on. (laughs) (laughs) I get the sense that Loyal's kind of uh, librarian bookstore owner self and his vast knowledge that he has isn't normal for Ogier. And the little short we got... um, about the steadings it didn't seem like that was a core to their culture that they were kind of more of a homely race and and you know they're the builders so they kind of have that uh masonry i, I, I think it might have meant homely instead of homely <laughs> yeah. um so loyal, i think that's loyal different is, about is very beautiful in his own way okay <laughs> foreign gear is gorgeous <laughs> Sorry, David, continue. That's fine. Don't mind a good laugh. Uh, but anyway, just I, that may be part of his just adventurous spirit is that he wants to learn about more cultures and and have that knowledge that's not normal for an Ogier. Maybe you can correct me if that's different the book-wise because we don't haven't seen a bunch about the, their overall culture. Uh, so, so what does the rest of the panel think about that? I think... Ogiers are probably extremely knowledgeable, like very deep knowledge, but also narrow. And so what they know, they know like better than everybody else on the planet. And anything outside of that, you know, settings, building, um, crafts, I think. Um, I wouldn't say it. They don't care. They're not knowledgeable about it, but it's not necessarily a concern. So I, you know, in the short, um, there were pictures of someone's study. And so I imagine, you know, if when it comes to their own culture, like obviously there's nobody better and anything related to whatever, you know, their interests are, they have a lot going on for them. But if it's, you know, in general, if it's something about, you know, I said I, they have you know, just general knowledge. And that's that. And then you have Loyal, who's like, actually, I want to know everything, all of it, all at once. Um, And so he might be a bit atypical. That's the sense I get. He's the curious Ogier. There's always one. Yeah. So you think that all Ogier basically have PhDs, but in very, very specific subjects. Yeah. Okay. I get the sense it's passed down like from uh, master to apprentice or father to son type of situation where, you know, you have that um, older knowledge being passed to the younger generation. And you tend to not like learn a whole lot of new, especially if the younger generation is very focused and doesn't go outside of their world a lot, which with the steadings, that would kind of be the case for the most part. Yeah, I, I I do get the feeling that he is he he is he is different from other Ogier in that he he has that curiosity he has the the want to know the world you know how it connects 
to to the knowledge that the Ogier have. You know, he, he's he's looking for some connection. This is somewhat non sequitur, but somewhat uh, related. Um, you know how a lot of shows do like little mini episodes or like five minute things sometimes to advertise. The one I, not even joking, want to see is Loyal catching somebody stealing a book from his store. Because watching how Loyal would handle somebody mm-hmm. trying to steal a book, <laughs> ju- there's a story there. Him not only trying to to help the the person who's stealing and why are they stealing and and helping them understand in a very factual way, but also somewhat respecting the fact that they want knowledge and like giving them a job. It's like I could totally see this amazing story just in somebody trying to steal a book from Loyal Store. I want to see that now. <laughs> <laughs> so, any other thoughts about Loyal? There was a, a tiny little throwaway phrase when um, Loyal located um, uh, Nynaeve, where uh, he said, you know, Ogira are allowed to freely enter the gardens of the White Towers. So possibly because they the Ogir built them, because yeah. my understanding is that the Ogir is built most of um Tarvalon. Um but it, the Ogier but, built pretty much all of Tarvalon, yes. But it really also is kind of um it gives you an idea of how the the Ogier as a race are perceived in the world that they are so completely trustworthy that they can just come and go as they please and nobody is concerned about who they're working for or who they are or what studying they're from. They're just free to come and go. I, I would say the only person that probably has an issue with the Ogier being able to come and go as they please is the tower's master gardener. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sure he's probably sick. He or she is probably sick of hearing from every Ogier who comes through how to better tend everything that they're already attending. <laughs> Let me do my job. Well, you know, part of that has to do with the fact that they're unable to touch the source. So they're not a threat to, to the Aes Sedai. And uh, yeah, having them- They're not a magical threat, but I mean, one could still say they're definitely a physical threat. But there's a, there seems to be a, a peace and a, a detente, I guess. I don't know. There may be some history. There may be something boiling up. You may have some sort of rebel gear. Don't know. Don't know. You're leading me down a path, aren't you? I'm not leading you down <laughs> any path. I'm just, I'm just, seeing, I'm just throwing questions out there and seeing what shakes out. Uh, I love how suspicious people. we've all become. Oh yeah, <laughs> Dude, <laughs> oh, yeah. Of all the knowledge, that's <laughs> a leading question. <laughs> I will tell you now that anymore. yes, I do sometimes ask leading questions to see if to to try to lead you in a specific direction, but there are just as many times that I ask leading questions that lead away from from the actual answer, just to see where you go down that that road. So uh, it helps. It helps give you deniability later on. We understand the trick. Mm-hmm. And, and also, <laughs> they they sometimes ask questions that I know are just genuine interest in what you've just said. Right. Oh yeah. That is not about the plot that's known or unknown. So, yeah. But but coming Got back it. to what 
what Greg said. <laughs> just a, just a gen, general interesting thing that Two more Greg steps said. down this road. Um, what do you think an angry Ogier would look like? Because Greg said, you know, you said that there's a sense of peace about them. So then what do you think an angry Ogier would look like? I was once on a bison farm. And it is kind of a fact that is acknowledged between the farmers and the bison that if they really wanted to leave, there's not much you could actually do about it. <laughs> but they're so calm that that they just, you know, go about their day. But you so never piss them bison. off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm and same kind of thing. You know, you've got the the cows oh, so now, they're, now they're just cows no 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 there's a there is a bovine aspect there's a bovine aspect i would say they are at least as as noble as a yak okay there you go that works that's in the that's unlike the, all those uh bovines though if there were an angry uh oh gear you could at least run away from it i don't know man. you could try I, uh, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, Ogier I don't know about is, that. Yeah, Ogier is taller than a person standing on a horse. And they're more comfortable on their feet than on a horse. I suppose that uh, depends on whether their slowness relates to their calmness or not. Yeah. F around and find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do neither. <laughs> So any other loose change related to Loyal? I have a couple, couple of things. One yeah. is related back to having entry to, to the tower. I mean, we only had one season, but the only people that you really see Aes Sedai being respectful to outside of themselves is to the Ogier. And there's a real respect bordering a mild deference. Do you have any thoughts about that? I noticed that. And I think it comes from Ogier being creators in their own right, where, you know, they build very intentionally and they live at least as long as Aes Sedai seem to. Like, I'm assuming Aes Sedai, like, have an extended lifespan. Um, and, you know, there's Ogier knowledge that, you know, people in the ivory tower cannot touch. Um, and it would take them many lifetimes to try to. And while they're not a threat, I think that in, in and of itself is probably extremely unsettling. And so, you know, espe especially since they cannot touch the source in any sort of way. Um, and that, you know, the very de definition of a setting kind of neutralizes them. And so it's like, okay, you will cause no trouble for me, but there's, you know, something here that just really, really gets under our skin. So we're going to, you know, respect and in some cases even defer to you. Because, you know, you have something that we don't and cannot have. And I don't I don't think I'm articulating this well. I don't really have the words for it at the moment. But yeah, if I were an Aes Sedai, I would definitely be very careful around Ogier, even if I knew they would never hurt me. 
see, my my take on that was slightly different. I saw it as um, almost like a they have a shared history. Like the the Ogier built um, Tarvalon. They Aes Sedai had to kind of reestablish themselves as a power in the world, and they were only able to do so because they had these allies that helped them. Um, establish a base, create a safe space for for um, for the channelers. Um, so I see them as kind of like having a historical relationship, strategic alliance. And th- that, yeah, and that's what leads to that mutual respect. So what you've both said has just sparked something in my head. I just both of you have articulated it perfectly and it completely combines because like Siobhan, like you said, you know, the the Ogier helped during the breaking. Like they took some of the mill channelers into the steading to try and, you know, figure out if they could help in any way. It also kind of prolonged the breaking in a way that at least not everybody was destroyed. So they were definitely the the, the really possibly the only allies at that time. But Samaria, what you've said is is an, as an aspect I never really thought about, which is, yes, they are allies and they are builders and they have that respect. But I never thought about the Aes Sedai actually, the, the Steadings being a kind of threat. Like I never thought, thought about the fact that they can't touch the source when they're inside as being threatening to them. And that, I think, is, is a really important angle to the relationship. Leave your weapons at the door. <laughs> <laughs> And I had one more, one more connected to the um, the connection that you've made about the longevity of the Ogier and the Aes Sedai. So the fact that the Ogier have these, re- you know, it's kind of a rough kind of calculation. If Loyal is ninety and he's kind of roughly the same age as Rand, then to be, get to eighty, it'd be roughly around three hundred and sixty years, four hundred years. So, what do you think? Having that kind of perspective, how the Ogier look at the rest of the world? And how far back their knowledge goes. Do you have any thoughts around the difference between that and the rest of Randland? Well, it's certainly easier to have a, a deeper knowledge when you're longer lived. You see, see a lot more. You experience a lot more. Um, that is if you get out. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's see. So it's 2022. So say I was born in 1932. And imagining all of what I've seen, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, well, I'm still here. So, like, I would either become super, like, I don't care about humans. Like, they destroy each other. And then they come back and they're just fine. So, whatever. Or, you know, I think I, like, the other option is I would probably be, vaguely brokenhearted all the time but very gentle and hopeful at the same time where it's like these are very fragile creatures and they will annihilate themselves but they will also like claw their way back and come back fighting and they keep trying and oh gosh do i have a do i have a like a thesis statement i don't know i one one hand i can understand why they would stay in a setting if that was the case um Two, if I were a loyal type wanting to go out into the world, I think it would it it would just really teach me one that you know 
whatever is lost will come back again, which is very important in this particular world. Um, and two, there's always something to look forward to. So I don't know. It's a lot. 400 years? What's that? 17? No, I can't count. 1600s? Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of exciting, actually, as, you know, a former history major. I think I would have loved to see things happen from, you know, 1622. That'd be fun sometimes. So yeah. so what I'm getting out of what you're saying is uh, the ogre view us the same way we view our pets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, they're they're okay. They They might be a little hasty sometimes they're you know you're going to go through several of them in your lifetime because they have a shorter life and they're going to die on you yep kind of like wookies exactly yeah. uh dw you had some yeah i i'm curious i you i don't remember it being discussed in the show or even on here as much but i've noticed over the past few episodes the reference to Randland. yes ah. <laughs> Is that the actual name of the land? No. Okay. That, that, <laughs> because I'm like, how did we not key in that Rand was the dragon when he's named after the freaking <laughs> land? I intentionally avoided use of the term Randland for for a, a long time just because I did not want to give it away in the, such a, a spectacular manner. And then along comes <laughs> Sima. Yeah. But, but now that you're um, kind of not. <laughs> Convinced that he might be the <laughs> I, okay. I don't know. I'm still rooting for Tom. Um, but so, out of curiosity, is there a name of the land? Um, Less popular, or is there just not one? Uh, yeah, they don't really name their their world. There's not a so Brandland came out of the fact that there isn't a name. Yeah, yeah. But, to be but I don't remember. I don't know if it's just for the show. In the show, they call it the Westlands. But in yes, the books, the, the, yeah, I don't yeah, the, remember the, the, the various, being, Yeah, the various yeah. continents do have their own names, like, you know, the Westlands. Um, and that's the only one I'm going to tell you about, because that's the only one I've been exposed to so far. <laughs> we almost um, got something there. Yeah, I watched yeah, that, you, that, that, you, that you lunch. You, you, saw, you saw that happen. Um, so, yeah, the, the Westlands is what the, the continent area that they are inhabiting is called. Um, so when you... have different names. Okay, so when you say Randland, are you talking I mean, about the I Westlands and just yeah. okay, okay? So the, the the part that is relevant. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. I just I it, I'd let it fly a couple of times and then no, I was no, just no, like, I'm no, so glad. I'm so glad that you that you asked because um, yeah, it's it's a fan. It was that's because there were, I don't recall and I don't know if others did, but they just ignored it. I don't ever remember there being a reference to Westlands, and it was just became Randland. Well, it was also a believable name, which was part of where I was like, it wasn't Matlands, which we would have all like been like, yeah, it's named after Matt. Like nobody'd name it. But Randland had kind of like an interesting problem. I'm like, is it just coincidence? Or okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. It it <laughs> arose from the the fan base because there was not a name for the world other than just the world. So Got it. Got it. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> So this is why I wasn't on the podcast when you were going through the show. <laughs> like the first episode. So what do we think about Rhineland? <laughs> well, I, I can't wait till we get to the crappy continent where it's named after me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Pengalod. What seems to be ailing you today? 
Doc, it's the strangest thing. Every night after I've gone to bed, just as I start to drift off, I start yelling out strange words like Shire, Frodo, and Gollum. Last night I even yelled Mordor. I really don't know what to do. Ah, yes. I've been seeing this a lot lately. What you're experiencing is called Tolkien in your sleep. It's caused by an acute Lord of the Rings deficiency. Tolkien in my sleep? Oh no, that sounds serious. Don't worry, don't worry. It's really common right now. It can be treated with a very simple prescription. Here, take this. It's called Watch Party Lord of the Rings. Watch Party Lord of the Rings? It's a great podcast where they talk about everything related to Lord of the Rings. They go deep into the lore, talk about the film trilogy, old cartoon adaptations, and Amazon's Lord of the Rings series. Listen to it once a week and you'll stop Tolkien in your sleep in no time. Side effects of Watch Party Lord of the Rings may include happiness, giggling, merrymaking, jollification, witty banter, inner peace, enlightenment, and excessive Tolkien while awake. Caution, Watch Party Lord of the Rings may be addictive. So I think that about covers everything that we were talking about with Loyal, especially since we we ended up pretty far afield from our discussion of Loyal there. So I think uh, it's about time to move on to our next next uh, character, and that character is Tam. Uh, played by Michael McElhatton? McElhatton. 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 Perhaps I I mistyped it in my notes, which is making it more difficult to pronounce. I believe Um, you also have to have a shot of whiskey before pronouncing it. Some some have certain sound effects you have to make. That one specifically requires a a shot of whiskey. Just to cut off the fact that we might get letters saying that you're feeding into horrible stereotypes there. I would like to point out that both of the Irish people on the show agreed with that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, he's playing Tamlin Althor. That's Tam's full name, Tamlin. Um, And he's an Irish actor. You know him as Roose Bolton on Game of Thrones, and he's been in a lot of other stuff. He's, He's one of the bigger names in the show for sure. And I'm, I'm personally glad that they went with a, a bit, bit of a bigger name to play Tam. Because in my opinion, that Tam is a very important character. So his description from the book, uh, he has a thick chest and lined face. Uh, his hair is gray with sprinkles of black. Um, but it did eventually completely go, go gray uh, by the time we see him in the show. Uh, he's described as being solid in every conceivable way. Um, just a solid person, both physically, mentally, emotionally, just a rock. He's been shown to be a superbly skilled warrior, both with a sword and perhaps even more so with a bow. He pretty much never misses a shot. And as I I talked about in our our Two Rivers deep dive, he wins the archery contest in the Two Rivers every single year. And yeah, that is Tam. That is uh, Tam from the books. What do we think of the the actor that that was chosen to play Tam? Does Does he fulfill that? I love it. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I feel it's a spot on. Yeah. Uh, so, so what do we think about Tam? What's what are his motivations? What we know a bit about his background. Let's let's talk about that. Where do we think Tam might be going? I'm hoping we get to see him again. I would like to yes. see more of Tam. I like the description of him as being um, solid because um, there's this there's this little tiny moment where you know the the Trollic invasion has just happened and everything's on fire and people are injured. And, you know, Moraine is saying we have to go marching off God knows where. And Rand looks at Tam and Tam just gives this little nod. Like, this is something you have Mm -hmm. to do. 
And it's, it just, like, it was just this tiny little movement, but it had so much weight behind it because this is a person who knows what he's about. <laughs> he knows what's going on. And he's like, yeah. yes, this is, the, this is the right choice. It shows how good of a parent he is too. Um, Cause he could probably see the, the fear in Rand's eyes about leaving the, uh, into the unknown, leaving that place that he's always been his entire life and giving him that. No, it's okay. Been there, done that. You're you'll be all right. Yep. So Tam to me, um, he's analogous in my mind to um Jonathan Kent from DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, Jonathan and Martha Kent are the greatest heroes in the DC universe, you know, more than any of the other heroes. And it's because they were decent people who took in a person with the powers of a god and taught him to be a decent person. Agreed. And, and, and that's very much what I'm seeing from Tam here. He, he took someone who was not his own, raised him as though he were his own, and he, he was his own. And, and, you know, tried to instill in him a sense of decency, a sense of moral center. So that, that's the, the, how I've always seen Tam. Same with continuing that line of being a quality parent just knowing how to raise a decent person and, and teach them how to be a good human. Um, so Tam, his past, what do we know about his past? What, what do we think? How did that inform who Tam is? Highly trained, uh, a swordsman, master swordsman. So he's got a lot of, a lot of skill, a lot of physical, mental skill that, you, know, you wouldn't expect from a sheep herder. I wonder where the compassion comes from, though. Like, he's not your typical soldier. No. It, your typical soldier would not stop on that battlefield to help this Aiel woman give birth. The, the enemy, essentially. The person who's just killed all of your fellows. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder where that comes from. I think it's earned. Like, I get the feeling that that compassion was something he worked very hard for. Like, there are people who just seem to be born naturally like that. And then there are some people who you can tell after, you know, maybe one instance, you know, one experience or just a series of them. You know, they finally, you know, made the active decision to, you know, build compassion, build empathy. And I'm not saying that, you know, they're sociopaths naturally, but, you know, they're just kind of, you're, you know, average. You don't, like, you don't go out of your way to hurt people, but you also don't go out of your way to help them necessarily. And I get the feeling that when it comes to Tam, you know, he's seen a lot of the world you know, he's been, you know, a soldier for however long. And at some point he made the active decision, you know, actually I'm going to purposely build myself up to be a compassionate man. And then he stuck to it. Like he really, you know, took the time to do that inner work. I wonder where his mentors come from. Because presumably with the amount of time that he spent outside of the two rivers, probably was fairly young when he left there. Uh, So I don't know if his parents were mentors or if there's someone in the army that became a mentor. And typically that learning you get from somewhere, that deep compassion, that ability to be a parent comes from somewhere typically. 
and usually it's a mentor that you have in the past. And I, I get the sense that Tam maybe didn't have that at home, which is why he left. So it would, it would follow then that there was some sort of army mentor that he had that gave him that. I was actually just going to ask uh, the panel a question about that, which is, do we think that he had, do we think that compassion is an inherent part of him from either from birth or from just being raised in the two rivers with two, two rivers ideals? Or was that something that he, as you were saying, kind of built up after he left the two, two Did rivers? Did he bring it to the battlefield or learn it on the battlefield? Yeah, very much so. I like Samaria's theory um, that he made the active decision. I mean, whether he was first, whether he first learned it in two rivers through, you know, other people's example, there's a point when he's working as a soldier where you have to say, you know what, this is an active decision I'm going to make about how I'm going to conduct myself, even while at war. To me, that speaks of the importance that somebody like that has a, a, a puts a, a lot of weight and a lot of importance on their own personal moral code. And they may make lip service to other codes that they're supposed to live up to. But if the two come in conflict, they're going to go with the morals every single time. And that's kind of what I'm hearing here. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. we saw that on the battlefield, you know, on the mountain. He, uh, you know, he had the directive from somewhere to, you know, make sure that this Isle woman, whether she's in labor or not, whether she's alone or not, whether she's trying to hide or not, whether um, she's trying to kill everybody that you know or not, (laughs) you know, make sure, you know, she's killed, you know, do away with her completely. Um, and he made that decision, you know, no, I'm going to help her regardless. and know that speaks volumes whether he knew you know her purpose in the grand scheme or not but that brings up another interesting question because he and his wife could did not have children or could not have children uh was there a was the motivation a selfless or selfish motivation to let her give birth so that's that that's a good question uh i think either would uh would be plausible you know is he is he a uh is he just a a good person who wants to help this random woman or is he trying to take advantage of the situation i think his motivations are a little a little unclear all we get is just the look on his face and the look on his face kind of leans toward that altruistic uh you know, this is a woman who is in labor and just damn the fact that she's my enemy. I'm going to help her out. But then again, also, what does he do with the child? I think for her, it doesn't matter because for her on her end, you know, she knows she's going to die regardless. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in her from her perspective, you know, there's this man who, you know, has appeared out of nowhere, who's an enemy, who has you know, helped her give birth to her child and kept her safe until, you know, the child is born and she dies. And I mean, I guess 
if I were, you know, in her position, I'd wonder, okay, is he going to kill my baby too? But I mean, she didn't really have a choice in the matter finding out. So Right. Well, and to not be brutal about it, but there's no reason to go through the process of helping a baby be born to then turn around and kill it. Like you could just end it all right there and you don't have to go through the process of helping a baby be born. If you're in a battlefield, that seems like that would be more of the brutal response. So the fact that he took a moment to help the baby be born means he actually cares enough that the baby's all right. And that says something about his personality that says, so so it might've given like you, you see in her face in that moment, beautifully acted, but you see in her face in that moment of the, like, what are you going to do? Uh, you're not stabbing me like that, that moment of like, you're, you're not coming at me to fight. You're, and that's when she like takes his hand. I think it was his hand. She like grips his hand for the, the birth. But there's that moment of, look, we're in a bad situation and clearly it's not this baby's fault. So let's get this baby into this world and then we'll figure out from there. Yeah. I think the moment that he puts his hand out, that is the moment she knows she's safe. Yeah. Like, and it, like you or said, the baby's safe at least. acted, you know. Yeah, you, you could see that sense of relief just pass yeah. over her face. Yeah. 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 And I don't think it's and so much that she was safe. It's that the baby was safe. She knows what her fate is. Yeah. Well, she knows she she knows she's dying because she's been stabbed. But I believe completely that she felt safe with him in that moment. It was so raw, and I and I, you know, I just think I know that they really meticulously planned that scene, and it shows so strongly the way. It's not just that she takes his hand; it's the way she takes his hand. It is like that grip of safety and you got me. Okay, yeah. let's do this. Yeah, the tentativeness, because they, they did a beautiful job of showing her like hesitation and then the just all in. Yes, mm -hmm. this is happening. This needs to happen. And you're here for it. Okay, let's do this. And like I, I the, to, to bridge the, the uh, comments being made there. Like, yes, she knew she wasn't safe in that she's going to die but she didn't have any concern that he was going to slit her throat. She also didn't seem to have any concern that she was going to hurt, that he was going to hurt the baby. Yeah. He clearly cared enough in that moment. So in the, it created a bubble of safety on a battlefield, which is a jarring thing to begin with. Mm -hmm. And just that moment of like, of all the people that could have walked up to me, I just killed eight of you guys and <laughs> you're going to come up to me and not attack. Okay. I'm going to accept the gift that you're giving me right now of support. And I'm going to go through what biologically I kind of don't have a choice. And I, and I think in that moment in a, a maternal instinct, I can only speak from a paternal aspect of how I would feel, but I believe there was a little bit of, I know I'm gone. I just want my baby to be all right. Right. And then coming back to what Ruak said, you know, do we think that this compassion is something that is kind of, innate to the two rivers or is it something that Tam develops I like to think that it's innate because he kind of left the two rivers and you know he for whatever reason he went to Ilian and ended up you know being part of the army because I believe he believed in the cause but he says in the show and in his fever dream that he he had to leave the battle because it was too much like the destruction you know, it it was just too much for him. And that is what made him go up into the mountain. He was almost fleeing 
the death and destruction. And then he came into life. And again, you know, the pattern, right? Like the, the pattern needed him to be there. But there was also something in him also that he just couldn't, he got to the point where he could not take any more death and destruction and he needed to get away from the heat of battle, I believe he says. And then he go, comes into the situation where he be, brings life into the world. And then almost the answer to what was missing in their marriage. So I want to get a, a little more granular on it. Um, just a, a quick question. In that moment where he came across her and he stopped, do we think it was he stopped because he saw that she was pregnant and in labor? Do we think it was he stopped because she was a woman? Or, or is it something else entirely? Is it, is it because he's, he's just done with being a soldier? I think if you're hesitating in front of Ayil soldiers who just happen to be women, I don't think you stay a soldier for very long. <laughs> <laughs> Valid point. Yes. But Rurik, you had mentioned at one point in time that the Ayil um, way, because Tom mentions it also, is that if they have their veil down, that they're not a threat. Yes. And I, I wonder if that's something that Tom knew about the Aiel. That Probably. even though they were his enemy or because they were his enemy, he understood more about them and was able to stop in that moment because she had pulled her veil down and saw that. Yeah. That's a good thought also. Yeah, I was going to wait for everyone to speak before saying that, but yeah, that's David's nailed it for me i because at this point um the war has been going on with the aiel has been going on for 20 years is that right uh no no, no. uh the aiel war was actually fairly short-lived it was Ten three years? or four years total i think oh okay yeah i'm getting confused okay i'm thinking about something else but the fact that tam has been involved in it at the front line he would absolutely know that difference i think so when he, when he sees her with the veil down, that's the first pause. And then witnesses, hang on, she's pregnant. Hang on, she's bleeding. I think it kind of naturally flows from that. And I mean, presumably somebody knows about that. If, if Tom understands it, then maybe some other glee man or some other um, salesperson that can go to the Aiel Waste had figured that out and then had brought that information to the army so that they could understand it as well. And maybe the rest of the army folks don't care because they're the enemy, but Tam with his um, compassion knows that and sees that and stops in that moment. Well, there's also just to be, you know, military about it, understanding your enemies, huge, you know, battle. So knowing little signs like, Oh, in this moment, you'll know they're about to attack. You also, it's useful to know in this moment, they won't attack. Okay, because not everything always breaks down to fight. I, don't, I can't speak for that particular battle, but sometimes there may be a moment for um, truce conversation or something like that in a battle. And so knowing the tell that your enemy has that means they're not aggressive in that moment is important for a military person. Which speaks to Tam's ability as a soldier. Mm-hmm. A high level getting into that space beside the fact that he's a blade master and amazing with the bow as well. You know, 
there's that general aspect where he's knowledgeable about the enemy and able to do the the tactical portion of warfare. Uh, just to clarify the question from earlier, the Aiel War started in the spring of 976 and ended in the winter of 978. So ah. lasted almost two years. I think I got confused with Rand being born and in the start of the book, 20 years, I don't know where. Any other thoughts on Tam? Can't wait to see him again. There's yeah. there's a lot there. I know that I know that there's there's more there than they've shown us. I, I absolutely I think the bits with the uh heron mark and all of that, like there's there's more to be learned in all of that. Yeah, I'm kind of interested to see how Tam's history plays out in his personality. Because I had mentioned before that the sword was kind of stored stuffed stored inside underneath the bed and away from anybody seeing it and being able to suss out that this was his past. So obviously there's some sort of either emotional trauma or desire to keep that quiet and out of his life. So if war comes to this land, which is the direction it seems to be headed, what happens to Tam now that he's going to be thrust into a warlike situation again? Yeah. So where do you think Tam's going? Because the last time we see him, he's just been healed. He's still, you know, a little unsteady on his feet. Um, he can't travel with Rand. Do we think he's just waiting in the two rivers for Rand to come back? Tam no. knows about Aes Sedai and so, yeah, Samaria? I don't. I don't know what Tam will do, but I don't think he's going to sit by idly. I think he'll leave two rivers and go somewhere either to track his kid or to figure out a way to you know help the situation whatever the situation is it's a whole lot out but he doesn't strike me as the type once his kid is out in the world especially once he gets word of even a little of what's happened that he'll be like oh i'll just wait till he comes back like i don't get that vibe at all i think we'll uh see him show up in Tarvalon, kind of like Bilbo shows up in oh, Rivendell and Lord of the Rings. Another parallel. <laughs> uh, DW, I know you also had another question. Well, I just am looking forward to um, specifically when we see Tam and uh, Rand reunite and how that conversation is going to go. Um, and that's going to also depend on what happens to Rand from where we know Rand is now and by the time he runs back into Tam, if that's something that um, creates more conflict with who he is, or if he comes to better terms with who he is, we'll all reflect on how he interacts with Tam, how angry he might be for a secret having been kept, if he understands why the secret was kept, how much did Tam know? He knew he was you know, not his son, but did he know he was the dragon? Did he know he was the dragon when he let him go with the Aes Sedai? Like, what did he think was going to happen when the Aes Sedai get their hands on the Dragon Reborn? Like, what what did Tam know and how is Rand going to respond to finding out more? How much more Tam will tell him? I don't know that we know answers to that, but that's the questions going on in my head. No, I, I actually, I want to hear from, from the panel. I want to hear some speculation here. I want to know uh, what you think that that if if Rand and Tam were to reunite how that's going to go I, I want to I want to hear 
speculation. Yeah, there's going to be contentiousness, I believe. Um, I don't know if Rand will feel betrayal, but at the very least, he'll be uh, skeptical of anything that, that Tam has to say. You know, you lied to me about where I came from. What else have you been lying to me about? I don't know. I I, I see um, Tam and Rand's interactions to be so supportive and so loving in every other possible way that I can see there being some shouting over, why didn't you tell me I was adopted? But I can't see that being a long-term issue between them. I could see them giving, I could see Rand giving Tam a chance to answer. Mm -hmm. In other words, why did you do it? I just want to know why. What was your thought process? And then reacting to what the answer is. I just see, though, their relationship is such a mentor-mentee situation, even even outside of a father-son construct, that Rand would just flow right back to that because he's in such turmoil with what's going on in his own life. He has to have that, anchor. that help, that assistance, that, that anchor voice. Back to to give him guidance. And I just don't think it's going to be contentious at all. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I could go, I, I could go either way on that, but I'm leaning toward there will be a little bit of conflict. Uh, I think it'll resolve fairly quickly, but there will be some conflict when they first run into each other. And I think with that, we've uh, pretty much hit the bottom of the barrel of uh, discussing Tam for this episode. So uh, bottom of the uh, brandy cask, I guess yep. it would be the, the proper term. <laughs> um, so uh, mailbag, we have no mailbag this week. Oh. No mailbag. Um, but if you want to submit mailbag for our show next Sad. week or in the future, you can send that to watchpartywat, watchpartywot at gmail.com. Uh, if you send uh, a letter into us, we will read it on the air and, and have a discussion about it. Um, also, Please find send it. mail or egos need it. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Simon. I was going to say, and if, if for whatever reason, you know, sometimes getting onto your email just takes a little bit more effort. If you're in, um, in our Facebook groups and you just want to put something in there, tag Ruark or myself, and uh, we can also... Read it off there. That would be great. What And throwing out an idea for those of you who've been listening for a while or even new starters, go ahead and answer the final question. We'd love to hear your answers to the final question. Yes. Um, so if you have a favorite final question we've ended the podcast with, please send us an email with what your answer is and we'll talk about it and, and have some, uh, some uh, give, give your answer the airwaves to, to ride on. Well, or some of, some of them... Only Ruach and I may. Yeah. Oh, valid. Yeah, they're gonna be. They're gonna be scanned, yeah. <laughs> filtered. There are there no are uh, antivirus, anti-spoiler uh, program. <laughs> yeah, its name is Ruark. Yes. <laughs> um, and like usual, we want to say, of course, thank you to Michael and Jen at the secret. Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you so much, Michael and Jen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Island. And now, final question for the panel. Uh, this one's put forth by DW. Go ahead, DW. Uh, so if you were to have a Gleeman sing the ballad of you, what is the song or what is the moral of that song? 
So you have to be the first to answer the question. <laughs> no, no, no. Ruark never answers first. <laughs> That's the question, which means I don't have to go first. Okay. Um, in 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 my world, uh, they would be playing Albuquerque by Weird Al Yankovic. Good <laughs> choice. Uh, uh, the moral yes. of the story there Love is that song. that song makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So it's a good <laughs> description of my life. Perfect. Perfect. Um, for some reason, the one that sticks with me is Time by Tom Waits. Uh, I don't know why. That song has just always gotten just gotten to me it's it's one of those that just hits just right and tom would sound great singing it so i think for me the answer would be uh coward of the county by kenny rogers um it's a song that was like initially played for me by one of my siblings to kind of help guide me in some of my choices and i ended up embracing it to the point of being a pacifist but also feeling very, very underestimated when people hear the term pacifism to mean that you'll never stand up to somebody. And I I just loved the idea of the person who has agreed to not fight. And then in that moment of defending those that are important, absolutely is willing to fight and it will not go for well for you. Could have heard a pin drop when Johnny stopped to lock the door. Oh, I love that song. <laughs> uh, for me, I don't know what the theme of the song would be, but it probably has way too many verses and would put the crowd to sleep. <laughs> so hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. <laughs> hey, no dissing Leonard Cohen on my watch. <laughs> I'm not dissing. I'm just saying there are a lot of verses. He only performed like six or seven of the verses. He actually wrote like 74. Right, so right. Just be, be, be. But that way you can all of them. you can change which six or seven you do each time. Beautiful. <laughs> so this is actually an easy one for me because I picked out my theme song when I was like 20 years old. Um, there was an old punk band in Southern Ontario called the Demix, and they had a uh, they had one song on the radio called "I Want to Go to New York City." Um, but the song of theirs that I loved was called 400 Blows," and it was about. Um, losing up the fight, but getting up and going on anyway. And um, other people not being able to see the damage that you took from that. And I kind of embraced that song as my theme song. It's like, I may fall down, but I'm still here. Let's see. My ballad would be uh, Find Your Way Back by Beyonce from her Blackest King concept album. Um, don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically it's a... Um, she remixed The Lion King. And Find Your Way Back is supposed to be parallel to that scene where Simba and Mufasa are having that like heart-to-heart chat. And, you know, he goes, this is all your kingdom or will be, but you got to grow up first. And that's what that song is about. And um, it kind of makes me cry a bit. But um, it's... Like my favorite line is come back home before the street lights on, find your way back. And just the idea that, you know, you're being sent out into the world to find yourself, but eventually you return home and your home will finally like fit you be. So very nice. So I, um, I'm an original and uh, the ballad of me would be called She Slept a Lot. It was not (laughs) 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 (laugh